Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What brand do you remember having an impact on you? The first brand having an impact on you as a young boy? British Airways. I think I experienced it first and then became a bit obsessive. Um, My parents had divorced. I was eight years old and my father moved to Botswana. And my mother put me on a flight by myself um, to Botswana. I think the flight was like a 13-hour flight. And there there were two things that happened at that time. One is that I just remember the experience and the service being phenomenal like it was the first time as a kid anyone cared about what my what I wanted to eat or you know what what I was watching to drink and you know there was an air stewardess who probably took care of me and I still actually have a traveler's passport where the captain signed the amount of miles I did and signed it this was at the time where they just released uh, face the ad done by Saatchi and Saatchi it was actually the reason why I went and did an internship at Saatchi and Saatchi. Just, I was just absolutely obsessed. And I think at some point I even, I was like, I want to be the CMO of, of British Airways one day. How do you feel about them now? <laughs> <laughs> That's a longer conversation, right? Uh, I mean, yes. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Musa Tarek, the chief marketing officer of GoFundMe, the large crowdfunding platform founded in 2010 with headquarters in Redwood City, California. Since its founding, 200 million people have used the platform to raise $15 billion for causes, events, or people they care about. Last year, Time named GoFundMe as one of the 100 most influential companies in the world. My guest, Musa, is a marketing all-star. His career path includes stints at J. Walter Thompson, Nike, Burberry, Apple Retail, Ford, and Airbnb. He has been CMO at GoFundMe since January 2021, and his path to that company is very interesting, as you will hear. He's a graduate of the London School of Economics. Musa considers marketing his calling. In his words, it's my love, my hobby, my passion. This is my conversation with a guy who loves marketing as much as me, Musa Tarek. Musa, welcome to the CMO Podcast. You have worked at some of my favorite companies, Nike, Apple, Ford, Burberry, Airbnb, and now GoFundMe. So let's start with what has been your secret in navigating this blue chip, gold star career path? (laughs) Jim, I I wish there was a secret. Um, definitely, Definitely no secret here. Although I think it roots back to who I was growing up in that, you know, I, I went to the London School of Economics. Uh, my parents wanted me to be, well, they didn't want me to be a banker, but I think I was destined to be a banker. My cousin was a banker. My sister was a banker. Everyone around me who was successful was a banker, right? This is the, the 80s. And 
inevitably that became kind of the, the path I was going to take. Um, got to the London School of Economics and halfway through my mother passed away. Um, and I lost my father in the same year oh, and that kind of shook everything up for me. Um, and I remember a year later after coming back to university, uh, Martin Sorrell was speaking at the London School of Economics. And I have to admit, I was completely lost at that point in my life. I'm 21 years old, just lost both my parents. And I raise my hand at the, the end of the talk and I say, hey, listen, do you have any advice for someone who's a bit lost in life? And he said, do something you love in life and you'll do well in it. Do something you love in life and you'll do well in it. And I, and I talk about this a lot because I have followed those exact words since he told me. And I realized that I got into work, I got into advertising, started working for brands. And I think that I had something to prove. Um, particularly all my friends at LSE were like, well, why would you go into advertising? Like, go into banking, you make so much more money. And what happened was I had something to prove. And slowly, and I think this happens to a lot of people, is that their work becomes their identity. And so for me, the way to reflect how well I was doing and to prove everyone wrong was to go, okay, I'm going to work at the best companies in the world. And, you know, soon I became that, you know, oh, that's Musa. That's the Burberry Apple Nike guy. That's Burberry Apple Nike guy. And I heard this over and over again. Yeah, that's how I started. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. It made me feel really good about life. Yeah. Um, but then as you know, I've grown older, things have changed, but I think that's, that's one of the, the reasons why I kind of started collecting all these logos was because, well, this is a great way of reflecting how good I am or how successful I can be. Does Martin know, does Sir Martin know how powerful that advice was for you? We were at uh, a conference together and it was kind of the evening event. There was dinner. He was with a bunch of people. And I was like, you know what? Like it's been maybe 10 years since he said this to me. And, and at the time he didn't know me. This is before I joined Ford. I just went up to him and I said, listen, this is the most random thing to say. I kind of felt like it was one of those, like, you know, when you go up to like a celebrity moment and like embarrass yourself. Uh, and I just went up to him and I told him those exact words. And I think we sat on a step uh, for about 45 minutes um, talking about kind of my career and everything that happened since and so on. And it was just a very inspiring moment. But I was very, very grateful for him because I think those words are something that I live by and share with as many people as possible. He's a very wise man. You know, I've known him for a long time when he purchased Gray. It was a big agency for P&G, and that was a big step. But I, I've invited him to my program at the Cannes Festival. I do a CMO program every year when the festival is live. And I always bring him in to speak, and he always says yes, because he just has such wisdom about the world, about economies, about companies, about leadership, about management. And he's, he's very honest. Very honest. You know, he, do he doesn't hold back. So I think he's, I'm a big fan of him. He, I always feel smarter. And I think my students in that program are smarter when they have a chance to interact with him in sort of a deep way. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about how you bounced back when you lost two parents at 21. Talk about grit and resilience. What did you learn at that time in your life about yourself and about your ability to get through adversity? So my parents divorced when I was eight. My, my, my father left and my mother raised me and my sister as a single parent. And she started up a flower shop in the city of London. And it was my first job was delivering flowers. And I 
I love that. Like I thought work was amazing because all it was was knocking on people's doors and handing them bouquets of flowers and then getting this amazing reaction in return. And I was like, well, if this is work, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And, you know, she worked really, really hard, never complained about it and, and taught us a lot about hard work. But when she passed, I remember going to the shop maybe a month later and I was there for a day or two because someone needed to look after things and close things up and figure out how we're doing. And the number of people, Jim, that stopped by who had the most wonderful things to say about my mother was probably the most empowering and like heartwarming feeling. You know, when, when someone passes, people say a lot of things. Like, and, and of course, we, it's very difficult. There's nothing, no words that can really help you get through this. But it was the individual people who came in every day and said, you know, you're, do you know your mother used to come on a Friday after work every day and drop me whatever flowers were remaining in the flower shop? Like this old lady, I forgot her name was. But she came in and she said, and, and she said it used to make my day and she never took any money. And it was these gestures of kindness that I never knew my mother was showing other strangers that just warmed, warmed my heart like you can't imagine. And I think that 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 inspired me. And then second of all, and maybe this has come over time, is you very quickly realize how precious life is. And, you know, I'm it bugs my wife like crazy. It bugs a lot of my friends, but I like to think of myself as incredibly optimistic. Not because that's my personality. I, I'm incredibly optimistic because I'm just like, life is so precious. You know, my parents were in their 50s when they passed. And, you know, I'm I'm nearly 40 years old. And so I've got the, my, the way my brain works is I've got 10 years. And if my parents knew they only had 10 years, would they have done things the same way they did? Uh, and so hopefully, you know, I, I live to a longer, longer, longer age. But at the same time, that for me has really inspired me to just not worry about the little things uh, and really focus on the bigger things. This is interesting. A little bit, little bit strange. I'm interviewing you now. I just made plans with my wife. Talk about precious. It's been a bucket list of hers to go to the Chelsea Flower Show in London. The greatest flower oh, show in the world, yeah. right? So we just yeah. made plans yeah, to come to that. London in late May to go to the flower show because she's always wanted to do that. And she's a real flower nerd. So uh, that's interesting that I'm talking to you and your mother yeah. was running a flower shop. So what was your favorite flower? You know what? This, you're not the first person who's asking that question. And I have no idea. I genuinely, and, and I think this is, this is maybe too deep for a CMO <laughs> podcast, but I'll tell you something. One of my biggest regrets was not asking my mother mm -hmm. more questions. And, and I think that, when you're 20 years old, you are so young that all you think about is yourself. Uh, and, it, and you know, I have, I'm very envious of people who have relationships with their parents now at our age, because you get past that. It's about me. You get to ask questions. And so it's one of my biggest regrets is that there might be a ton of questions that I, I'd wish I'd asked her and my father uh, prior. And I, I just never got around to it. But, you know, she, she just had... I don't think she had a, she did. I don't know if she ever had a favorite, to be honest. Um, she loved them all. Oh, we should pause there. It, it's, it's a, I, I knew, I learned things about my mother right before she passed and she passed right before COVID things that I should have known. So I think it's a good time to think about, are you asking the people that you love dearly in your life 
enough questions. So you learn about them and you know them and your relationship becomes deeper. So no, I think it's very appropriate for the CMO podcast because relationships are at the core. The relationships, mm -hmm. trust and love are at the core of everything. So I think it's a fabulous yeah. takeaway. So what's your favorite flower? The calla lily. It's very, very simple, beautiful. Uh, I had a bit of a moment. I admit it's it's maybe not a flower I've bought since. And then the tuber rose. So tuber rose is is very native to Pakistan, uh, where my I'm, my parents were originally from. And there's something about the smell of tuber roses. They're, they're not they're not like perfect either. Like I, and I think maybe that's how I've evolved. Is that you know once upon a time it was the calla lily, which was like this beautifully aesthetic flower that had no smell and character to to now i guess my favorite flower would be a tuberose which is imperfect but has this incredible smell and history and, and 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 story in it for me growing up what would you say is the key to success for today's cmo if you said data you wouldn't be the only one at deloitte however we believe data is only half of the equation the other half story because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So I want to continue a bit on this theme of you know, life in general before jumping into your role at GoFundMe. You have a few interesting rituals in your life, and I want to talk about those first. And the first one is that you try to make it a habit to speak to customers directly at least once a week. And that's probably from your flower shop days. But what, what I, I want to ask you, what do you talk to them about when you talk to your customers once a week? Jim, I, I, it interestingly roots back from the question you asked me about asking mm -hmm. my mother questions. And I, I realized I just didn't. And having worked at, you know, in, in my opinion, some of the greatest companies and brands in the world when i think back to key pivotal moments in those organizations or why why ford sells more f-150s than any other vehicle in the world why apple sells iphones why nike sells product there's two reasons one is i think they live on this idea that, and i think that the greatest brands in the world are built on an inherent human truth that's one thing we can talk about that a bit later on and it's why one of the reasons i joined gofundme but the second thing is, is they just know what their customers want. Like it is, it's an obsessive nature. And, and, you know, for me, it's not more complicated than, you know, jumping on a Zoom or getting in front of someone and, and asking just the, the most simple question, Jim, what do you think about our brand? What do you think about the product? And it's amazing what people will tell you. Um, and it, so it's, it's, I wish it was more complicated than that. You can ask the most simple question and it's amazing what you will hear back in return. The one thing I do know is I sometimes have to push, right? What's that third why? Not the first why, not the second why, it's the third why. It's, it's the third why is the one where they go, hmm, uh, let me think about that a bit more. And then that answer, that answer is always gold. Why is this so helpful for you? Is it do you get ideas? Do you get inspired? Do you do you stay connected to your customers? Why is it so helpful? My our customers are our innovation team. Uh, the way I look at it is that you know I could hire an innovation team, right? I might hire some of the best directors of innovation and so on, and might have five of them or ten of them, depending on how much money I have. Maybe a bit more if you're at a Ford, but. 
there's, you know, in some instances, hundreds, thousands, millions of customers that you have, and they are innovating on your platform all the time. For me, that's where the innovation ideas come from. And I, I think, you know, people hack things more than you can imagine. It's like, whoa, I didn't realize that customers are using our product that way. That's really interesting. Should we go and build on that? I wish there's actually a book that just talked about customer innovation versus brand innovation, because it would be fascinating. I think there'd be hundreds of examples of people doing things. One of my favorite examples is is Coca-Cola and that that machine that they have, which allows you to you know kind of put like half Fanta, half Coca-Cola, because they realized customers were doing it anyway. And so instead of going to machine and just being able to pick one, why not be able to pick multiple and add things and mix drinks up and the amount of data that they're probably getting to be able to um, create create drinks that customers want, I think is amazing. A second ritual I think is very interesting is you spend a lot of time with blank pieces of paper and Le Pens. <laughs> so tell us about, there we go. <laughs> All right, I'm, we're on a Zoom call and... And Musa has just held up a blank sheet of paper, so so he's walking the talk and, and, and the pen, right? And I know you have dozens or hundreds of those. So tell us about that. What's this all about? I, I wish it was more complicated than other other than I I have a lot of ideas. I find a blank piece of paper the most daunting daunting thing in the world, and it, it's like my Everest. It's like I oh god, I've got to now put stuff down on here, and, and once I do. It then just flows, but it, it's sadly not more complicated than just a great way for me to think about things. And I wish it was structured. Like I think if you looked at half the half the pieces of the paper around me, I, I mean you can't see it very clearly, but like it's just all over the place and it's chaotic. And I often never even come back to it. But it's just for me a great way to get thoughts down. Do you do it when you're trying to solve a problem, or you have some a gap in your day, or do you do it when you wake up, or when you go before you go to bed? What's your how do you do it? No, no routine. Just as 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 things as things come to me. Okay, last ritual. You must have a reading ritual. You started a marketing book club on LinkedIn, and I think it has like I don't know four thousand members or so. What motivated you to do that? There was there because there was no ritual. You know, Jim, I found myself, I've grown up with social media. You know, I was once upon a time a social media coordinator, manager, and, and so on. And so I was learning marketing from either doing and, and people around me or from Twitter. And as you, you can imagine, there are a lot of people out there with a lot of opinions. And so you're listening and reading and then you're like, wait, hold on a second. What am I doing? And I think that there's two things that I'm conscious of today. One is that I think our industry, and particularly in modern day brands, prepares the marketer the least out of any other department in the organization. I, you know, you look at the, the P&Gs, the Unilevers, the Pepsis, I think they do, the Kellogg's of the world. They've been doing this for so long now that they have incredible programs and give people incredible foundations in, in education and marketing, right? Like proper marketing. I came from a week at JWT, where in that week I was learned, I, I was taught how to put an agenda together, how to place a pen to the right of the yeah. agenda, and to make sure that my client had their favorite drink in front of them. Like that was my account management at its best. <laughs> that, that was my, my training. And, and yes, I, I learned from a lot of people around me. But there's two things. One is I wasn't reading enough, and I was kind of taking these small bites from Twitter. 
And then second of all, I realized, so I needed a group of people to motivate me to read and read with. And like, you know, I was hoping that it would be like 10 or 20 people. And then it's now three, 4,000 people. But the second thing I realized is that our industry has been around for so long that there are incredible truths, uh, principles that were established generations ago that still very much apply today. And so instead of me going and reinventing the wheel, you know, I, I started thinking about the first marketing book I read, which was John Steele's Truth, Lies and Advertising. And I said, I'm going to go back to this. And I went back to it with a group of people on, in, in the group. And it was amazing. It was like, well, this is a very simple, fundamental truth that I would have learned at school or university if I'd done a degree. But I, I remember coming up and there being a bias against people who'd done marketing degrees in, in our industry. Um, and so since then, we've just kind of really focused on classics. But one of the things that we had a challenge with was we wanted different voices. We wanted mm. women and people of color who were also sharing their perspectives. And when you go back, as you can imagine, it's pretty non-existent. Um, and so we've now got to a point where we read both classics, um, but also books that are uh, more modern today, written by women and people of color. So we get that balance. This is a tough question for you. I know off on the spot, but can you recommend a book or two that your club is talking about now or you're reading now that's interesting for you yeah one is uh positioning by mm -hmm. al Rees and jack trout like that's a, a classic i think also um just read uh obsessed um and obsessed is obsessed is by emily hayward uh emily was the founder of red antler uh, which is one of the one of the, like i think i think kind of the agency that built up a lot of d2c brands yep. And it's 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 a great it's a great read. So those those are two of my favorites right now. The obsessed is on my reading list. Anyway, let's uh, let's touch on your career path a little bit more deeply, than, and then get into your current role. It is an amazing career path. That's how I started this interview. Is there a boss or a mentor who really stands out along that career path for you, Musa? Yes. Can I can I answer that in two parts? Sure. Uh, boss would be. Angela Arendt, mm, who yeah. is the, the, the CEO of Burberry, um, she was the visionary who had the foresight to, to say, hold on a second, digital is going to be massive. Um, we're a luxury brand. We need to evolve. That's how we're going to do it. And so I remember even in my interview process, um, even though I was joining as probably the most junior person in the organization, um, she was part of the interview process. And, you know, I've Worked with her at, at uh, Apple as well. Um, she was on the board of Airbnb, um, and so we bump each bump into each other and connect on a on a regular basis. She's been someone who has been a inspiration of mine and someone who's mentored me and guided me along the way. Um, and then the second part of that question for me are uh, several of my peers. I think one of the the biggest misconceptions in life is that a mentor has to be someone who is you know much more senior than you. Uh, my greatest mentors are are my peers. They're people who were along the same level of me at some point were junior marketing managers. You know, Nick Tran, who was sure. recently the CMO of TikTok. Me and him were community him and him were community managers at, at he was at Taco Bell. I was at Nike at the time. Um Jen Rubio, who started Away, was a community manager at Warby Parker. And then there's a ton of others who I I trust and, and speak to on a regular basis. And, and those are some of the greatest mentors I have. You left Airbnb about 18 months ago and joined GoFundMe shortly after. 
And this is a very different business model than any company you've worked at before. Why did you make that choice to go to GoFundMe? Jim, I was left Airbnb, pandemic kicked in. I was looking after the Airbnb experiences business and kind of we shifted online and realized that, you know, the experiences business was going to take a massive, massive hit. There was going to be very little media budget, advertising budget to support it. And so started thinking about what was next. And I was advising, consulting, not quite sure what I was going to do, had some amazing opportunities with some very big established brands, which again would have added another another logo to my list. And I realized that for the first time, I wanted to make sure that a brand and where I worked wasn't representing who I was. Like it wasn't my identity. And I'd just become a father at this time, uh, Zane, who's now three years old. And I was thinking about all these things. I was thinking about, right, like how can I do what my mother did for me to Zane, right? Like if I was to pass today, how do I make sure that people come to Zane and say, hey, look, you know, I just want you to know this about your father. He was a, a very kind and thoughtful human being. And a, a mentor of mine, Adam Bain, who was at, used to be at Twitter, um, said, said, hey, Musa, you should speak to, to Tim Cadogan. He's a new CM, CEO at GoFundMe. He's looking for some advice on, on marketing. And to be honest, Jim, I didn't think anything of it. Um, and Tim was like, hey, do you want to speak later on this afternoon? I was like, sure. And I got on the call with Tim. And within seconds, I was like, oh my God, if this man asked me what my thoughts are on the GoFundMe brand, I'm screwed because I genuinely don't have any. Uh, and I, I like to think of myself as someone who likes brands. Like I can talk about most brands for quite a while. I had zero thoughts and thankfully he didn't. But as he was speaking, he unlocked a couple of things for me. The first was, like I said, I think the greatest brands in the world are built on an inherent human truth. So if you take Nike, for example, Nike's inherent human truth is that people want to get better. And so what Nike said do is they produce product that make you feel like you're getting better. And I was thinking about GoFundMe as Tim was speaking. I was like, well, hold on a second. GoFundMe is built on two inherent human truths. On one side, you have people who need help. So from the day you're born to the day you not die, you need someone to help. And on the flip side, people are inherently wired to help. Um, it's one of the richest sources of self-esteem. Um, people are built to be empathetic. You know, if I was standing next to you and I dropped something, you would mm -hmm. automatically want to pick it up. And so you've got these two inherent human truths that where the brand kind of comes together. So that was the first thing. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. The second is that every single GoFundMe is a story. You know, at Airbnb, we'd like to have wished every single Airbnb was a story. And we worked really hard to find that, you know, treehouse in Marin. But at GoFundMe, as I was reading through people's stories, it's people being incredibly vulnerable, putting themselves out there, asking for help. And as a marketer, you go, wow, this, this platform has more stories on it than Netflix has on, on their platform. And so that was the, the second thing that was like, wow. And then the third thing was, was, hold on a second, what this company is selling is not a, a product, it's not a item, it, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's raising money for people who need it, maybe at their, 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 their times of real need, but also raising money for people who want to then go and fulfill their dreams, like go and, 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 and educate themselves or go and create a community garden. 
And by the end of that call, it's a true story. I said, listen, Tim, I don't know if you're looking for a CMO, but I have I have these two offers on the table right now. And if you can get me an offer by Monday, this is a Friday. If you can get me an offer by Monday, uh, I'm in. Um, and he did. He, he, I spoke to a bunch of people over the weekend. And on, on Monday, there was an offer in my inbox and I, and I took it. And I it's, it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. Good for him and good for you to put it out there, right? Yeah. You wanted it. Absolutely. You, yeah. you were honest about it and, and he acted on it. So tell me... Uh, how is being, I know you're about a year into it, how is being a CMO at GoFundMe most different from your senior roles at Apple Retail, at Airbnb, and Ford, where you were very high, you were in very high positions in brand work at those three companies? How is this most different? Listen, I had an amazing time at all those companies, but I was joining companies that were already established brands. Um, you know, I, 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 can't, I cannot take any credit for building those brands. They were amazing marketeers who were there for many years and CEOs who were there for many years who built those brands. I, I had I had nothing to do with that. I like to think that I helped move them along mm -hmm. or helped evolve them and, and shifted them in different directions. And even though I was there at each of them for a very short period of time, I'm happy to talk about that. I do definitely think I made a difference. But you know, those weren't brands that I helped built. Um, I think the opportunity here at GoFundMe is that, as I mentioned to you before, uh, when I came into that conversation, and it's it's common conversation I have with a lot of people, is that most people aren't really thinking about the GoFundMe brand. It's a utility. It's a utility that provides a great service. But the way people talk about it is very utilitarian. There's zero emotion in it. And, you know, I like to use Airbnb as a great example. Five years ago, if you asked people to describe Airbnb, they would have said, well, it's a cheap place to find accommodation. Today, after the great work, you know, Jonathan Mildenhall's on our, our board at GoFundMe, but the great work that he did with the team that he built with Brian and the founders, today you would never describe Airbnb that way, even though there's still a cheap place to find accommodation. And I think that's the opportunity we have at GoFundMe is that, you know, today we are a fundraising platform for people in need. I think we have a huge opportunity of being, you know, the most helpful place in the world, be it whether you're trying to fulfill needs or dreams. And, and I think that's the opportunity and that's the difference in that when you're in a startup, when you're, even though it's a 10 year old startup, when you're in a company that's growing at the speed we are, um, the opportunity of kind of layering on that for me is, is, is precious and very different from what I've had the opportunity to do before. What are you learning most from Jonathan in this role? Jonathan Mildenhall, for our listeners, was at Coca-Cola for many years. He came out of the agency world, went to Airbnb, and he's one of the brightest lights in our industry. He, is, he makes an impact in organizations and brands almost instantly. By the way, tell him I said hello. And what are you learning from him in this role? Can I tell you? Well, I'll go back a tiny bit because when you know, you're probably very aware of this, like marketeers tend not to make it to the boardroom. Uh, it's, it's a, it's something that's happened more recently, but traditionally hasn't been the path of a, a CMO. And when Tim, my CEO was like, Hey, we're thinking about putting Jordan, uh, Jonathan on the board. I was like, yes, please. I was like, this is exactly what we need because however much I'd like to think I can, selling a good story or, or fight for more budget, having someone in the marketing world who understands both brand and growth to be able to help fight my cause to a, a, a boardroom, I think is, is priceless. And I think, you know, 
every CMO should be fighting to get a marketing person on the board. Um, of course, Jonathan has, in his, has his opinions, which I love. And, you know, he knows that there's a boundary between, mm-hmm. you know, he just doesn't want to get involved in the day-to-day work and he trusts my opinion. However, having him as a resource to be able to go to when I've either got uh, a problem or a creative idea or a brand choice and getting his perspective is is priceless. Um, you know, normally I'd have to pay a lot of money to do that. Uh, but to be able to to be able to pick up a phone and, and he's one of those people who always answers uh, is fantastic. And I think there's a, a huge argument to get more marketing people on up and boards um, to help brands grow, but to, to have that fight up in the, the, the boardroom where, you know, it is important to invest in brand just as much as immediate growth. Yeah, you're right. It's trending better. There are more senior marketing people on boards than there were 10 years ago, but we need to do better. And I, I was on two boards and I thought I had a, a lot of value because I just came at it at, at problems and situations very differently from my peers on the board. Great. And I think Jonathan, you know, one other thing is, is, is Jonathan knows brands aren't built overnight. And so it's very easy for board members to kind of challenge us to move metrics immediately. Jonathan appreciates there's a time horizon. Of course, he, he's very strong. And, and I completely agree with him in that, like, everything should be measurable. But, you know, sometimes things take a bit longer than, than what's expected from other departments. What are you most proud of in your first year? You know, it was, it was two things, I think. One is... I think I built the best team around me that I've ever had in in any marketing department. I've, you know, I I I started new departments at Apple and Nike and Burberry and Airbnb and I've hired some amazing people over the years. But what's different about GoFundMe at the moment with my team is they're not just incredibly talented you know i've hired great people from airbnb and hulu and a number of different organizations but it's their purpose that is aligned with the brand so closely that the pandemic helped by the way you know you know a lot of people went through this well what am i doing with my life i want to be doing good we we felt so helpless sitting behind our our computer screens and while everything's going on in the world that you know, I've had so many talented people just reach out and say, listen, I'm at this stage in my life where I just want to do good. And um, I still want to work for a for-profit for organization. But at the same time, they feel that there's an opportunity to do good. And so the team, first of all, I think is is something that I'm incredibly proud of. And it just has so much potential ahead of it. And so I feel very, very supported by them. And the second, I think, is it kind of happens every single day. Jim. Um, and I, it's weird to say this, but there are decisions that I make every single day that impact people's lives and, and ultimately help them. And for most people, that's always a side part of their job, right? Like, oh, I'm working on this initiative as a charity initiative, or I'm working on this initiative to support our brand, but it's something I all do. I need to sell I need to sell cars during the day, but in the evenings, I'm going to be focused on increasing inclusion and diversity or supporting this local business. Whereas the thing that has traditionally been on the side is my day job. And, and Tim Cadogan, my CEO, will call me up and say, you know, congratulations for raising $7 million to stop Asian hate and, and, and getting that message out there. And it's, you know, I, I say this to my wife, often is that I'm incredibly proud of the work I'm doing right now, which I've never had the opportunity to say. And I think that's, uh, it just puts me in this very wonderful place. And, and it's not that I'm, I sometimes feel like it's a bit holier than now by saying it, 
but it's it's, it's so true um and and that's the, that's the wonderful thing about where i've kind of landed well it's it's uh absolutely the brand as you said has amazing inherent truths behind it we talk about purpose a lot in our industry this is a purpose-driven brand at its core i'd like you to talk maybe a bit more about that in the context of you joined saying this brand is sort of a transactional brand it's a platform it doesn't elicit the emotions that airbnb elicits right now or that nike or that apple does how are you approaching that because that's there are a lot of brands who are in your situation where they don't have a lot of resonance with people, they don't have a lot of meaningfulness, you know, even awareness. So how, how, what's your game plan on that? I think others could learn a lot from your thought process there. Fortunately for the brand, but maybe not for, for society, is that like over the last couple of years, brand awareness of GoFundMe has kind of shut up, right? We're, we're thinking, we're looking at about 90, 96% aided awareness. Um, on the brand and so people are very familiar about it right there's memes about it there's jokes about it you see it in tv shows and i think that 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 to me is like a good thing but however what's happened over time is that people now are making up their own assumptions on what the brand stands for and what the brand means right and i've spoken to a number of old people who've been in cmo positions at tech companies and they always say the same thing they said the biggest mistake that these tech companies made was they didn't get out there and tell the world about the good that happens on their platform. And when they did, it was too late, right? They, they kind of feel like you're in defense mode at this point in time. And so the first is I think we have an amazing opportunity to tell uh, stories about the incredible people on our platform who use our platform. And so that, that for me is like the, the very base, very simplest, easiest thing to do and there are hundreds and thousands of these amazing stories jim that i won't go into at this moment in time but like just a, a wonderful but the second thing for me is really thinking about what's our why and, and what's the the reason behind why gofundme exists and what's the opportunity that we have in place and i the interesting thing is is that there is emotion associated with gofundme but it's actually one of shame um and, I, and, and what i mean by that is What's happened is that, you know, you create a fundraiser for someone or yourself and asking for help is incredibly hard, Jim. Um, you know, there's enough research out there that says when you actually ask for help, it, your body releases the type of chemicals that are like being punched in the face. Uh, and so people are putting themselves out there being very vulnerable. And actually, we haven't helped with that. You know, we've actually made it harder to ask for help. The way that we positioned people on our website um, was that we kind of showed uh, people as, as weak when they were asking for help because there was always like a savior. Whereas actually, we believe that asking for help is incredibly powerful. Uh, the most successful people in the world that I know, and Brian Chesky asks for help all the time. Like some of the most successful people in the world I know ask for help all the time. And so we have an opportunity of doing two things. One is reframing what asking for help looks like and that is that is a very powerful thing to do i ask for help all the time the second is making sure that we are making it as easy to ask for help and that you are getting supported along that journey as much as possible and so reframing those two other opportunities i think then is what starts lifting the brand up and so you know simply put right there's the storytelling but then there's also thinking about our kind of positioning and opportunity and, and then the third thing for me 
is that I believe in the idea that like local solutions can solve big problems. And so we often sit here thinking about really big problems and go, well, I can't solve COVID. I can't solve racial injustice. But on the platform, what we're witnessing is people who are solving those problems at a very local level. So for example, there's an influence called Patagonia who is creating fundraisers to support organizations that support LGBTQ communities to go out in the, in the outdoors. And it's only once you go out in the outdoors do you realize the importance of climate and the environment. And so there's a number of different examples. Karita Collins, for example, who's trying to fight hate by dyeing yarn to support um, social injustice groups in, in Baltimore. Like, they're not trying to solve these big problems, but they recognize it's, it's, it's doing these things at a small scale in their local solutions can support the big problems, um, which I think is just, is just fascinating. So the, the deeper we can go in actually making it easier for people to ask for help, the more likely we are to help people. That's a great insight. Musa, you've said several times about the thousands of stories you have on your platform, and that's your database. It'd be interesting, I think, for our listeners to, to understand what have you learned about people over the last year and what they really care about the most? And is that different from what you would have said they cared about three years ago? And any insights about where this is going? Jim, the, the first thing that I have, I, I don't think I've learned. It's just been a great reminder that people are inherently good. The thing that I, I get privy to and people at GoFundMe get privy to because we're constantly in the campaigns trying to track and follow how they're growing and so on is how many people are willing to step up and help. There's, there's actually a statistic. There's actually a statistic that says that people are willing to give you 48% more help than you think they are. And so it goes back to the idea that it's already scary to ask for help. Will people help me? How will people perceive me? And so we've got a better job of perceiving people who ask for help to be stronger. But on the flip side, people are willing to help. And I think that the most rewarding thing that I have witnessed since my time at GoFundMe is the number of people who are willing to step up and help someone. You know, we, we watch the news and we see all these stories about terrible people. But the number of people who step up and help total strangers is is remarkable because they either relate to their story or because they see someone and they go you know what i want to help this person fulfill their dreams i want them to go out and get an education or let, get their pilot's license for the very first time and so that's the first thing that i have learned about people oh it's again i reframe that mm -hmm. reminded that people are inherently good and there are a lot of people who want to help each other um, the second, I, I think I touched on this earlier on, is that asking for help is very powerful and, and that we should all be encouraged to ask for help a lot more. Um, I think it holds people back when they're not asking for help. I think we slow down uh, innovation when we're not asking for help. You know, just like I go to customers on a weekly basis. In each instance, I'm asking someone for help. I'm asking them to, to help me better understand the brand I work at. I'm asking them to help come up with ideas to make our platform better for others. Um, and so that's the second thing. And then the third, I think, is that giving money is, is 
the base of what we do, but the real truth of what we do is actually provide emotional support. And so the number one story I hear on a regular basis is people who are fundraising for, say, for example, medical memorial and emergency. For them, it's not the money that's the powerful thing. It's the, it's the two, two things. It's one, wow, I didn't realize so many people cared. And then second of all, the comments that come in from just people and it, it's empowering. And I've had so many stories of people printing out the comment section of a, a GoFundMe, going to hospital and reading those comments out to, to someone who needs it. And, and those words meaning more to them than the amount raised in the first place. And, and I, I think that that is an incredibly powerful, powerful thing. And so, you know, I, I'm of course know that there's bad that happens in the world we're watching on news every single day but the opportunity for for people to see good happening i think is 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 something that we need to get out there more my opinion who's been the most inspiring person in your life you talked about your parents up front has it been them no is that a terrible thing to say i think what happened to them was uh inspiring which i think is a mm -hmm. very twisted logic but way i've i've dealt with things and that like life is short um I think I've been inspired by Jim so many different people uh, throughout my career at different points. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people where I still am in touch with, you know, my oldest friend. I think we've known each other my whole entire life. He lives not far from me. We see each other all the time. Um, I'm inspired by a lot of the people I've worked with, inspired by leaders, by mentors. And I, and I think most recently just inspired by my son. Um, and, you know, I just, I laugh so much more. I play so much more. I mean, this weekend, I'll, I'll openly admit, I was, um, I was, I was pretending I was a plane. And we went, we went to LAX and we sat by that in and out on the grass and we sent, we spent three hours there and I was just running around with my arms out like I was wings, um, in close to being 40. And I couldn't give a care in the world. I was having the best time. And I, and I think that. You know, children have this incredible ability to get you to start creating and, and thinking and, and playing again. My wife inspires me. I think I get inspiration from everyone. I know that sounds like a, such a cliche statement, but there's not one person. It's, it's all those people around me. Musa, we're so glad you did not go into banking and you went into marketing. Uh, I just love this conversation. It went to places I could never have imagined as I prepared for this. So thank you for your vulnerability and your insights, and your humor, and your wisdom. This has been simply marvelous. And all the best to you and your team with uh, Evolving GoFundMe. And it's already, I think, an amazing, amazing brand. And you're going to do more amazing things with it. Thank you, Jim. And, and before I go, it would be remiss not to say, listen, I'm a huge fan of, of your podcast. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of my mentors and people who inspire me on it recently. So I had massive... Uh, insecurities coming into this. I was like, do I belong here? Like, yes, this is do. amazing. I just saw, I, I just listened to Marvin and Lorraine the other day and, and like, yeah, beautiful episode. And then Morgan at McDonald's, who I just think is the most wonderful human being in the world. And so thank you for giving us a, a spotlight to share our stories and please keep doing it and asking the tough questions. I think it's important. Musa, thank you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Musa Tarek. Three takeaways from this very personal discussion to apply to your business, brand, and life. First one is, life is precious. We are only on this planet a precious amount of time, and make the most of it, 
ask questions, make sure the people that you love, admire, and respect know that. Musa talked about his parents both passing away in their 50s. Now, how he had hoped, how he had wished, he had asked them a few more questions. Second takeaway, every great brand has an inherent human truth underneath it, underlying it as its foundation. The question it raises for you is, do you understand your brand's inherent human truth? And is your organization acting on that inherent human truth? I think in many ways, that's the purpose of the brand. And I thought Moose's discussion about inherent human truths was very, very insightful. Last takeaway, don't be afraid to ask for help. GoFundMe is all about people asking for help. And sometimes they feel shameful. It's actually a sign of strength when you ask for help in your personal life, in your business life, and in life generally. And I think a bonus takeaway in this one, when I asked Moose about who his mentors are, he talked about his peers. Remember, you can learn a lot from your peers, not just from your bosses and the thought leaders in our industry. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.